0: Do you ever find yourself wondering, just wondering why people do things the way they do? For instance, yesterday got crazy, okay? Dieta will attest, won't you, Dieta, that it was crazy in Hugo's yesterday. There were no donut holes. (laughs) It was nonsense in there. And I went up to her, I said, Dieta, there's no donut holes. What do I do? So I went over to Walmart, and I can tell you guys don't care as much for the Walmart mini donuts as you do for the Hugo's donut holes because there's still a bunch sitting there. All right? I get it. I understand it. That's why we go to Hugo's and get those donut holes. But what I don't understand is time and time again, when you're looking for the Walmart mini donuts, how often one of the donuts has just been squished in the in the two parts of the plastic container. It's like, why don't you get them out of the way before you close those little pressy things? What, can you not see this? That one after another after another, we've destroyed one of the mini donuts. And I'm looking around going, right, I want some that are not all squished. Why do they do that? Why? Because it's the Super Bowl, so you have to reference it. It seems to me that there's a lot of hatred for Tom Brady. Now, seriously, why? What, what did he do that's any that much worse than what anybody else does, okay? I mean, I, I know about the deflated football thing, supposedly, whatever that was. I get that. But there are people who can tell you, you know, it's like, a, yeah, well, I hate Tom Brady because he cheats, you know. And so I don't, I don't get connected to anybody who does, you know, these terrible things. And then they go out and go to movies that take the Lord's name in vain and, and make God look stupid. And they spend God's money on that stuff. But, but, boy, I sure, you know, I can't stand with Tom Brady because he cheats. No, I think there may be something else in play. I think for some people it just may be just a little bit tough to swallow that one guy could be that good. That good-looking, that famous, that rich, that many rings, and a trophy wife, it doesn't seem fair. And so I'll just say I don't like the fact that he cheats. I just wonder, I don't know, but I wonder why do people do what they do? The one that confuses me the most, though, are the atheists. Every year at Christmas time, there's this group called the Freedom From Religion Foundation, and they take it upon themselves to go to places where they see a manger scene or some, some aspect of the Christmas holiday on public ground, and their task is to wreak havoc over that. Now, here's why. You say, why do you bother? I don't understand. Because if your atheistic worldview is true... If you truly believe there is no God, that we are all the result of the Big Bang, random processes, chemistry and matter, then you have to conclude ultimately life has no meaning. Your life has no meaning. The thing you're upset about has no meaning. So why do you just want to go around being mean to people because they, they happen to believe something that you don't believe? Why? Why? Why are you upset by that? Because your logic has to tell you it doesn't matter. It's not real. It doesn't matter. Nor does my getting upset over it matter. So why don't you just chill and let the people who you would consider foolish for having a theistic worldview go about and have their theistic worldview without your making it the issue of your life. I don't get it. But there's something else I find that when I get there, I go, this is intriguing to me because I'm not sure I understand exactly what's happening here. And that is the people of Jesus' day. Luke chapter 15. We read this, verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. I think what Luke just told us. The tax collectors and the sinners, they're coming near to him and they want to hear what he has to say. Why? See, Because think about how he it relates to them. First of all, nowhere do you find him excusing their behavior. Matthew chapter 4, Matthew records Jesus saying, hey, if you... If you just love those or greet those in the marketplace who love you or greet you, well, you know, you're really no better than a tax collector. And he uses the tax collector as the identifying mark as kind of like the, the, low of, the lowest of the low. You're no better than the worst of sinners. And he just throws that right out there. In the parable, the well known parable of the two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. You're putting these two extremes. You got this supposedly, we're not going into the doctrine there, but supposedly this righteous religious person. Well, who's at the far end, the other end of the spectrum? It's the tax collector. This lowly, you know, uh, a deplorable uh, pariah in society. So he doesn't seem to speak highly of them, but they're coming to hear him. And, and he actually calls them out on their behavior. Luke chapter three, Luke said, records for us that when the tax collector came to Jesus and asked him what he ought to be doing different, what he ought to be doing about eternal life, and he says, "Hey, don't exact any more than you're due." Now you understand what the tax collectors—the reason they were the pariahs of society—is because they were Jews who worked for Rome, who who occupied Israel at this time, and they collected taxes for Rome, who people hated Rome. And they're Jews collecting taxes from their own fellow Jews. But not only that, they were known to collect more than was their due. They enriched themselves with their corruption. And so they were hated. So Jesus calls them out on that and says, uh, you, can't, you can't make yourself wealthy off of your fellow countrymen anymore. And so he's cutting into their bottom line in terms of what he says. So why are they coming <laughs> to hear this guy uh, speak Hear what he has to say. And with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, the, le- the little tax collector, you know. And by the time he's done, Jesus got him paying back fourfold what it is he's taken from people. Huh. This is not a good financial thing for the tax collectors with what this guy's doing. And yet, they're coming to hear him. And I say my, to myself, Why? Why are these people willing to come? Luke says, they came to hear what he had to say. And that's just the tax collectors. What about sinners? The woman who was at the well, right? This woman at the well who Jesus says, go get your husband. She says, I have no husband. He says, oh, you've spoken well, you have no husband. Not only have you had five previous husbands, but the one that you have now that you're living with is not your husband. And he calls her out on the sin of what is right in front of her. And yet, sinners are coming to hear him. The woman taken in adultery says, Go and sin no more. He doesn't excuse the sin. He says, That was wrong. You need to change your behavior there. So these people who are coming to hear him are people with whom he doesn't doesn't lift them up as like, hey, your behavior is incredibly good. Mark actually tells us, the common people heard him gladly. Wow. Wow. So back to Luke chapter 15. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And then Luke goes on. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Does that not enlighten us a little bit on this question? Why would they come? They came to Jesus because he was different than other religious Leaders, he was engaged with the people, not insulated from them. When I when I read that, I immediately think when we looked a few weeks back when John was baptizing in the Jordan and Jesus came to him and John resisted. Jesus said, "Let it be, let it be so for all righteousness to be fulfilled." And Jesus took on that full identification with our humanity so that he could ultimately die on our behalf. But he did not shun our humanity. And and for us, I mean, he was identifying with a a humanity that is just, just darkened and scarred with sin. And he did not separate himself. Instead, at his baptism, he identified himself so that he could engage with us. So, after Luke gives us this comment about the Pharisees and scribes complaining that he receives sinners and eats with them, Luke goes on. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance, or... What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, "'Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me.' So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, And he sent him into his fields to feed swine and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything." But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise, go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as the son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive and was lost and is found. See, Jesus' appeal to the tax collectors and the sinners is, to me, the strange part, at least as I look at it, is that his audience, the tax collectors and the sinners, are every bit as sinful as the Pharisees believe them to be. That's not the question. And he views them in the same way. He calls them to repent of their sin, both with Zacchaeus, who was a real person, and this parable of the prodigal son, was, who was received upon Repentance. So Jesus saw these tax collectors and sinners for all the sinfulness that they had. But here's the difference. Jesus called for repentance without communicating repugnance. See, that's what the Pharisees had come to. Well, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. He receives them, those kind. Jesus didn't deny the sin. He called for repentance, but without communicating repugnance. And here's the point I want us to take today, friends. We're not done, but I want to make sure we get this point out there. No one is sinless, but neither are they worthless. No one is sinless, but neither are they worthless. The sheep in the coin were worth searching for. When the sheep was lost, it left the 99, because there was worth in that sheep, and the shepherd wanted him back. When the coin was lost, probably a coin from her dowry, When that coin was lost, it mattered to that woman. And so she searched the house, high and low, until she found it. Because there was worth in that. The prodigal son was also being searched for, wasn't he? The difference in this case... As he was lost of his own doing and would need to be found of his own doing and Jesus described when he came to himself but the father was searching all the time. That's the picture he's giving. How do we know the father was searching? Because he said when he was still a long way off the father caught a glimpse of him and knew it was his son because the father it had his eyes on the horizon, waiting, searching for his son's return all that time. The son needed to come to his senses, but the father was always searching that horizon. In each of these three parables, and I think you have to take them together, something of value was lost and sought in each of the parables. But it's the third one, if you thought about it goes that one step further i mean there had been a coin lost there'd been a sheep lost there'd been a son lost there'd been a shepherd searching there'd been a woman searching there'd been the father searching there was a call to rejoice with each one when the sheep was found when the coin was found and when the son came home and they killed the fatted calf It's the same story set in three different ways and it just repeats itself. But I believe the first two are setting up the third to lead us into our understanding on the third one because the third one goes one step further and tells us about this brother who's not real thrilled by what is taking place. I don't think there's any question in interpreting that parable that that brother represents the Pharisees and the scribes of verse 2 who said, this man eats with sinners and receives them. That was the whole point to getting us to the end of this third parable. And these parables are setting up a contrast between Christ and the Pharisees. What's not in question is the sin. Jesus and the Pharisees agreed the behavior of the tax collectors and the sinners was wrong. They're in perfect agreement on that. But the Pharisees, somewhere along the line, forgot the value and the worth of the tax collectors and the sinners. And you know, friends, it was because these tax collectors and sinners were valuable that Jesus is even on the scene at all that he is walking in time space history at all how do we know that because luke tells us in 1910 the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost that's why he was there oh he re- he receives tax collectors and sinners yeah he does See, he was looking to save that which was lost. He was not looking down on that which was lost. Because he understood, no one is sinless, but neither are they worthless. Jesus valued them despite being undeniably sinful. He valued them also, I believe, as individuals, which is why we hear the story of the one sheep, of the one coin, of the one son, that every individual matters to Christ. And that, that just, in wrapping it up, that just brings me to a couple of questions which kind of just prod on my mind. When we see how Christ is said in contrast to the Pharisees. Here's this. First question. Is this, this one in contrast to the Pharisees, is this the Christ I proclaim? Is this the Christ I make known? See, I I could see we can go one of two different directions. And get off, get way off in terms of getting out of balance on how we how we make christ known one is and it's something that i see in our culture and it bothers me but it's not coming from within the church so it's going to do what it's going to do the one is we could take an approach that says you're so special you hardly need a savior wrong absolutely wrong there's value in everyone but no one's sinless and so everyone needs a savior But the other extreme is you're so sinful, you don't hardly have a chance. You're like the tax collectors and the sinners. There's no hope for you. Why bother? We're the good ones. And you know the balance to to what we need to proclaim, friends. It's just found in Romans 5, 9. About God commends his love towards us, what? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. No denying of the fact that every one of us is a sinner. Yet God's love reaches out to us because no one is sinless, but neither are they worthless. So do I strike that balance that presents Christ and proclaims Christ in that way? That's the first question. Is this the Christ I proclaim? The second one, is this the Christ I reflect? See, we understand that in the work of the gospel, we're being saved out of our sin so that God, by his word, might transform us, according to Romans 8.29, into the image of Jesus Christ. So the more we grow in grace and knowledge of him, the more we ought to look like him. And I ask myself, is this the Christ I reflect? And here's where it gets sticky. Is this the Christ I reflect to the atheist? To the Muslim? To the backslidden Christian? Is this the Christ I reflect to the homosexual? To the transgendered? To the hedonist? To the pornographer? Is this the Christ I reflect to the drunkard? To the molester? To the pusher? Gets real sticky when we take it out of theory and we say these are the people we run into every day. They're around us. How are we reflecting this Christ who would never agree with their sin, but came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I am prone that too often I'm ready to put people on a more degraded shelf of sin than myself. I... Have the tone of a Pharisee who says, Oh, he receives tax collectors and sinners and he eats with them. And too often that's my tone. Lori and I were flying a couple of years back and uh, they're sat in behind us. And generally on a plane, you know, you don't, I don't pay attention to the different rows and what's going on in people's conversations, but. But this girl sat in next to two guys she clearly did not know. They were younger than her. She clearly did not know them from their conversation. You couldn't miss the conversation. She'd been drinking. She was loud. And she was ordering more drinks as we flew. And she was clearly inappropriate in the things that she was saying to these young guys. She was obnoxious, and actually, she was being very sexually suggestive to these young guys. Tell you what, friends, in that context, it was very easy for me to look down on that woman. Very easy for me to think in terms of how unpleasant she was to have behind us on this very easy for me to see her as one of the sinners I'd like to raise this question every, every now and then friends is it an us versus them message that we bring is it us versus them is it us the good guys who meet here in the New and Evangelical Free Church And we remind each other how great we all are because we love Jesus and we sing songs. And is it us against them, the world out there of all these tax collectors and sinners? Is that where we can too easily come to? I hope not. I don't want to be that. It's not an us versus them message we bring, it is a hey, guess what? We are broken people and Jesus is saving us and we want to reach out to every other broken person who is coming to their senses and realizing the world is just chewing them up and spitting them out. And they're welcome here. And it doesn't matter what, what their history is, what their reputation is, what they look like, what they smell like, what we know they were doing the night before. They're one of us. Sinners in need of a Savior who is seeking those who are lost. So how do we help keep that in balance, friends? You see, because the questions are easy for me to ask. It's like, how do we practically maintain our set place in the right place and our minds in the right place on this? And I, and I, I just come to give us step number one, and then it's going to be a lifelong practice, and that is this. To always remember that Christ alone is my Righteousness. Christ alone. And to not get caught up in this thing that I'm a little bit better than that woman sitting in that seat behind me. No. No better at all. Christ alone is my righteousness. His not righteousness and his love and his death are just as effective for those who will receive him. Every bit is effective and he's looking for them. Because no one is sinless. Neither are they worthless. And that's our privilege to bring that message to a world that needs desperately to hear that spoken. Father, thank you. Thank you for the magnificence of Jesus Christ who did not excuse the sin of the people around him but so conducted himself in a way that they would come and He would speak against the sin, but somehow he communicated something about their worth and their value that they they could receive it, Lord. Oh, how magnificent the Savior, seeking those who are lost. May we be uh, engaged with him in that task because, because we are reflecting him through what we say and how we behave and how we treat the sinners around us who are just sinners like us, Lord transform us into that, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.